John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1445.PR2622, certificate number 44448, the worst poet in history. Darkle crunkles the saddest tune, I flirtling on a sorry moon, I'll wail and fork, hear borks boom, the desolate crunk of nurkles. You like... British comedy. <laughs> it's kind of the main thing about me. I'm a little, <laughs> little wacky that way. Love my red dwarf. I, uh-huh. lo- I love my black adder. Yes. All kinds of colors. Faulty towers. Faulty towers. You can't beat it. Well, how would you describe uh, the difference, the the, uh, the primary difference between British and American comedic sensibilities? That's an interesting question. I mean, it's become fuzzier over time. But, you know, the lightning bolt of uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus in um, 69 or 70 or whenever that first aired, I mean, it was immediately a hit all over the world. Uh, and there were lookalikes. Like, I think the Pythons lost some comedy competition to an Austrian Monty Python ripoff tribute band, basically. Uh and at that time, the the contrast was pretty stark. Um, you know, some of the Pythons were roped into doing kind of laugh-in type shows on American TV, but nobody on this side of the Atlantic was doing, um, well, that kind of absurdity. Mm-hmm. You know, sketches that just are funny because they don't make sense. Uh, maybe pushing an idea that's just strange until it becomes funny instead of just an idea that can immediately be apprehended as funny. Uh, there's definitely an element of fourth wall breaking in that kind of comedy. You know, the sketch could comment on itself. The characters could hold up little signs saying, I'm an insurance agent or whatever. You weren't going to see that on, on Laugh-In or whatever other sketch comedy there was in 1968 in the U.S. Um and then there's some, just something about, I think for us, I think for a lot of American Tiaboo types who kind of fetishize the culture, there's just something about the accents and the vestige of the class system and the kind of sense of authority and decorum that comes with all that culture Yeah, that kind of uh, juxtaposed with the silliness 
just seems delightful in a way that would seem precious if they were Americans trying to do the silly walk sketch, you know, right. like, because we're, we're seeing what we take to be very dignified, educated Oxbridge types doing it. That's much funnier than if, um, you know, Artie Johnson and Ruth Buzzy were doing it. It's, there's a quaintness to it, but, um, but there's also a, a, a kind of pathos to British comedy that's, that's, almost absent in American comedy in that um, Britons and, and, you know, the Commonwealth comedic sensibility loves uh, like a loser. Uh, American comedians, Stephen Fry very famously said like American comedian, American comedy is all about winning. Yeah. Um, The, the goofball, the, um, the, the, the outsider who raises his eyebrow and devastates everyone in the room. You know, the, the, the American comedian gets over. Even the standup is very cocky and he's got the last word on all the stuff he's observing. Right. Whereas the, the, the British comedic sensibility is much more about these functionaries, these gray suit types, the, right. the people that try and fail, the, the, the frustration of going into a shop and not being able to get what you want. How many Python sketches are just... A customer walks into a shop. Right. Man walks into a, a lawyer or accountant's office. Somebody, yeah, exactly. You, you're you're dealing it's with a government functionary. You're you're there's some confusion about the language. Um, you can't. You, yeah, you, you you get your paperwork wrong. And that's a that's kind of a it, it it pervades when you think about English comedy and all of the the best stuff. It kind of uh, w- once Stephen Fry made me aware of it, I realized. Oh wow! This really reverberates. It's why the two styles are so different, so markedly different, and how you can enjoy both, but the, but differentiate between them so much. I mean, think about the Goon Show. You think about all the um, all the classics. That's why we've been trying for decades to create engineer our own Mister Bean, mm-hmm. and we've been unable to unable to do it. All of our American beans have failed. And it's I think it's uh, it's a broad characterization of Americans in general, right? And it's one of the reasons that we're it's it's another kind of thing that makes us ridiculous to people around the world. I mean, that's why it seems so appealing to hear Stephen Fry say it, because it meshes with the idea of Americans as cowboy-booted, right. um, yokels tramp, trampling all over the world. And Stephen Fry is nice in that he expresses admiration for it because he's he's gentle. He's not a, he's not an English satirist who's going to make Americans who's going to you know pillory us or or shame us to death. Well, they can both be funny. Yeah, he you know there are. Stephen Fry knows there are funny British comics and there are funny American comics. And I think it's uh, it's maybe why British comedy seems a little bit more elevated to us, even even low humor there, because just the idea of celebrating um, someone who's frustrated by uh, by a bureaucracy uh, that that wouldn't be considered low humor in the United States, right? Low humor here is is just throwing turd balls at one another. And the well, the ultimate British comedy man fights bureaucracy icon is, I guess, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, and he was the only American Python. He must have been he must have been infected. He did. He got soaked. Soaked. He, he was soaking in it. The <laughs> palm olive of British, British comedy. <laughs> British uh, humiliation. You're soaking in it. But this goes way back in uh, in British culture, and I think uh, I think a lot of people, and even maybe Stephen Fry, attribute that. Um, the humiliation that's in the British sense of humor to the kind of 
end of the colonial period, the loss of the great empire, the feeling of of low self esteem or or um, uh, insecurity that that came from being sort of once great and now the generation that's in the ruins of it. Yeah, I but, wonder if there's some going to be some analog in. Um, you know, millennial or, or Gen Z. The post-American era? Yeah, the, the pathos of, of living in a, a dying empire. I mean, it's it's producing a lot of um, anxiety and addiction, but... Uh, you know, right, right now, there's a lot hilarious of... hilarious YouTubers? It's, it's producing a lot of angry comedy right now. There's not very much that's, like, gentle. That's right. It's just people lashing out on social media. But when you look at um, UK culture, uh, going back... 18th and uh, 19th century, you see this tendency, this um, the lovable idiot, the sort of like laughable fool. It's present in in English literature and culture, and and uh, I mean, I mean, you can trace it back to the origin story, right? It's it's really America is the is the anomaly. At, we have the shrewd Yankee. That's right. I'm trying to think what the, uh, what the kind of, uh, what the wellspring of it. Yeah. What are, you know, or what are, what are your Chaucerian or Shakespearean kind of, um, I, I, I thought this too. And I couldn't, fools. I couldn't find, I couldn't find the, the precise analog. And I think it may be, it may be, um, it's it's Dickensian for sure. Yeah, know? but that's Mr. The thing. Pickwick and all these kinds of. Uh... It may be a product of the Victorian era and the fact that um, that there are so many opportunities for there to be fish out of water as you move from the bucolic, uh, where the social order is really clear, and into a world where capitalism has sort of topsy turvied the social order. You have all these people that started. You know that are that are bumpkins that are suddenly wearing high collars and are expected to to perform in an industrial or in an urban context. But um, right, maybe restoration comedy could do that with city versus country or something. But it wasn't really getting upended yet. Yeah, the, you could contrast it yet, but you could contrast it, but there wasn't mobility. The bumpkin is funny, but it's really uh, the the class distinction. It's only funny to, I mean, you can you can only mock the manners. Those are comedies of manners, right? But right. when you get into uh, a, an urban context and you you are um, you're able then to mock people who are who who whose change in station it creates kind of these uh, people who have risen above their yeah. Above their capabilities, yeah, or or in a world, particularly in the 19th century in the UK, where um, you know, that kind of post enlightenment uh, sense that an intellectual life, uh, an urban intellectual life, somehow transcended class a little bit. Yeah, you could be brilliant. Um, it also opened the opportunity for so many people who, so many people to believe that they were inspired or brilliant. You know, it was a, it was a way to. Uh, to transcend your social strata, and that also opened up the opportunity for there to be a lot of fools. An, yeah, an awful lot of um, Monty Python poking at fools. It's uh, there's some pomposity. They're, you know, they're upper class twits. Sometimes they're right. expressly called upper class twits. And you know, even though I'm sure you know the Pythons had good Oxford's educations, I'm sure they were. I don't know. They 
come from upper middle class homes, I they, would assume. Yeah, they were uh, they were Oxford and Cambridge both. But um, but you know they they enjoy the uh, kind of nattering, silly, almost inbred, exaggerated idea of a of a frivolous upper class person with nothing to say and nothing between their ears. Yeah, when you think about the the those universities, um, prior to the nineteenth century, there wouldn't really have been much opportunity for a a brilliant son of a farmer to. Through through merit, attend Oxford. So there wouldn't have been the the idea that going there meant that you were. Um, I mean, I suppose you you needed to be one of the smarter members of the upper class to pursue a university education. But by the twentieth century, uh, the idea that wealth and privilege and Oxford conveyed intellectual status, or that you could be an idiotic but pompous well wait a minute what i'm i i'm pretty far afield here because of course there have always been dim-witted but pompous aristocrats yeah i'm sure that, that's that's where it and there must have been descendants of that into the 20th century you know that must have been the that must have been a type of person they knew at at oxford or cambridge right, right. well that or sought parties still still the case right just i mean who's in the house of lords today exactly or well now the House of Lords is different than it uh, constituted differently than it was in 1960 or 68. Right, but you, it's easy to find even the royal family saying just <laughs> just silly silly things that show they don't they don't get outside their bubble much. In the in the literary life in the United Kingdom in the 19th century, um, we had passed through the Enlightenment. There was a real, uh, there was a reaction to the Enlightenment that took the form in the early part of the 19th century of, of the Romantic poets, um, the Romantic era, where uh, there was, and we've talked about it several times on Omnibus, the uh, the reintroduction of nature and the ephemeral into reliability of emotion over the cold hard facts of their Enlightenment predecessors and the and the era of the of the you know the Coleridge and the Keats and the Shelleys the the you know the um, the romantic poet as a tragic figure and that's a world they write about that has mysteries in it you know the, the Enlightenment thinkers wanted to solve all those mysteries and codify them out of existence um, but the romantics like a spooky ruin or a uh, dappled glade you know where yeah. that's where gothic novels come from sure there are sprites in the in the it's way better. The, the the froggy marshes. It's way better. Who would you rather read poetry by? One of these guys or, you know, Alexander Pope. But I think it's hard for us through histories, uh, to, through the great misty fogs of history, to imagine what that would have felt like to um, to the working classes, right? There's um, We have Dickens and a lot of writers, contemporary writers, kind of showing us the working class uh, through, you know, through that lens, through the, the lens of the observer. But as we, as the romantic era sort of trended into the Victorian era, the role of the poet in public life in, um, in the streets of Edinburgh uh, would have still been, you know, the poet would have been a kind of rock star of the time and the effect of it would have 
not been limited to the upper classes, right? Po- poetry is the barrier to entry of poetry is pretty low. It's short. That's right. And and really there are a lot of different forms and like any literary form, you know, you can feel inspiration but not really have that inspiration conveyed to the page quite quite accurately. It can seem difficult to us today because we're reading slightly antiquated language or use of meter and rhyme that's unfamiliar to us today and certainly our future listeners will think the same thing about whatever poetry is like in the 21st century. Even the stuff we think is readable, they will not. But, uh, no, yeah, poetry was a mass art, you know? Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson was poet laureate for decades and was called upon to write stirring things about the empire. Right. You know, so everybody would love to read The Charge of the Light Brigade, and people would, crucially, people would learn to recite these things in grade school. So you could go your whole life reciting the boy stood on the burning deck or whatever, some kind of patriotic thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't fussy elitist high art. Everybody you knew knew about these great inspiring moments told in verse. And, and uh, that goes all the way back to the Greeks, right? I mean, the stories, the stories of Western literature were all poems. Ultimately easier to remember if you're Homer. Nowadays we, you know, uh, there's an Amanda Gorman every once in a blue moon who steps out and makes poetry relevant again, and all of a sudden there's a renewed interest in it. We, I came up in a time when, um, when the beat poets, the you know the Bukowskis, yeah, young were people still, all went through a phase. Young, yeah. young men actually all went through a phase of that, right. where where poetry and drunkenness kind of overlapped. The women were smarter, and they were reading Mary Oliver or something. But in the in the late nineteenth century in industrial Britain, poets were um, there were poets of all classes, and uh, working class poets would often kind of stand out in the street with handbills, writing their you know writing a poem and and selling it for a couple of pennies as a way of making a living. Poetry was a was a and and particularly like heroic poems, epic poems. Um, it was. It was a uh, and and most of those most of those working class poets, of course, their work didn't survive to the modern age, primarily because the gatekeepers were all upper class twits, or you know it was it was rare for a working class poet to be acknowledged as a as as truly gifted. They didn't even have publishers, right? right? Pretty much, you would go outside and get a hot, come back with a hot dog and a. And a, and and a, a couple of poems, a, a hot dog ri- uh, wrapped in a poem, a hot dog wrapped in a sonnet. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you would uh, poet poets would have sort of benefactors, local you know local people that that admired their poetry and maybe uh, supported them a little bit or you know p- combined their their pamphlets into larger pamphlets. But um, but during this period, it was. Um, it was kind of a if you were a reverend or a uh, you know a, a public figure, having a sideline writing poetry was not that unusual and was kind of almost you, you could se- you could like send it into some publication right and right. they would print uh, our correspondent J W from Sussex has sent us another one of his uh, works about the fields that's exactly in, in right. May. And in Scotland, one of the one of the sort of uh, benefactors or or, um, or champions, I guess, of working class poets was a reverend by the name of George Gilfillan, 
And he was himself a poet um, who was, I think, regarded by the intelligentsia of his era as not a very good poet. He worked for 30 years uh, composing an epic poem called Night. And when it finally was, you know, was published in its entirety, was sort of reviewed as like gibberish. Poets have been trying to write about Night for centuries, but, but this guy's finally going to nail it. He's got the take on night. It's very elusive. Last. I think it had, you know, his poem had 10 acts and, and, uh, and never really, it didn't coalesce, but Gil Fillen was, um, was a champion of other working class poets. And he was always sort of, uh, you know, trying to shine a light on the fact that all these mill workers in Scotland had their, uh, there were, there were a great number of them kind of, you know, like amateur, as you say, sending in poems to the local newspaper and, and, um, and this is a very progressive point of view for some of these social reformers, right? That even the the common working man among us produces, you know, un, unnoticed thinkers and diamonds in the rough. Right. Right. It, it was a, it was progressive. And also, you know, it coincided a lot with, because what's the difference really between a poem and a sermon in the um yeah it's punctuation yeah that's right and and often i mean this was an era where temperance was a major uh topic suffrage and these were all issues that if you could if you found a hogshead to stand on and give a speech why not also make that speech a poem they didn't have apple crates they had apple crates on the continent they had apple crates but the british were having to balance on hogshead it's like those things in pe you kind of have to wiggle on back and forth because the hogshead just won't Stay upright. Uh, well, there's the there's the actual hog's head. You're talking about like a, a barrel that, <laughs> yeah. that holds a hog's head. But or I something. love the picture of someone standing yeah, just on trying a, to balance. Like, like he's got a foot on each ear, chopped off head. He's like surfing a little bit at Hyde Park Corner. This was also the era of of big industrial projects. You know, big big infrastructural development. This was the the steam locomotive, the big factory, and so these uh, these topics became popular topics for epic poems. We, uh, they weren't the, the upper class was still writing about bucolic nature and about uh, great cavalry charges. Is it cavalry or cavalry? We always get that wrong. What do you think? Cal cavalry. Correct. Yay. Cavalry. cavalry charges. Um, but the, the, the mill workers had really the mill to write about Tr- or trouble down the mill. That's right. Or the mine or whatever. Um, and during this period, the the topic of our story, uh, a Scotsman by the name of William McGonagall, who arguably was an Irishman, but but uh, he, <laughs> they didn't have twenty three and me. <laughs> he claimed to have, well, his parents were both Irish and born in Ireland, but he claimed to have been born in Scotland. But there's some dispute about whether is that or something not. that you would you would claim you were born after after uh, emigration to make yourself yeah there more was of a, a there was a legitimate anchor baby type yeah there was a the uh, the poor act uh, was passed in sort of this era and if you'd been born in Scotland you would have been treated uh, better than a poor person born in Ireland not by me and that's probably not still by true. me I gotta say I would I would treat them all with the dignity that uh, they, they deserve well, sure as but children you're, of God. you're you're uh, you're on record as being the woke. That's true. Ken Jennings and this the is woke. the main way it manifests itself by treating Scottish and Irish people the same <laughs> as God intended. But McGonagall was a was a mill worker, a, a, a weaver, and worked an entire career uh, in the mills as a 
as actually like a a, a hand weaver. Not he was he was old enough that he could still use a use a loom uh, that wasn't like the the machine loom of the young people. It wasn't like the, they, these, they've got a room of oldsters still using the old stuff. They yeah, because uh, there were people. I mean, it was still skilled labor if you were doing detail work or whatever. And right. he he worked until he was in his late forties at a mill. He was a Presbyterian, a devout man, a, a, a teetotaler. He had seven kids. Um, just in general, kind of a a uh, upstanding working class guy, and then in his middle age, had a uh, and he was a he was a self taught guy who had kind of um, read enough Shakespeare and and sort of entertained the other fellows at the mill by orating. Um, you know, read, not reading aloud, but but from memory. You know, doing doing bits of the sonnets, and, recitations, and stuff. And Got this it. was the type of thing, I guess, that passed the time at the mill. He was considered he, uh, as a fairly self serious character. He was the first podcaster, basically. He, but over the sound, rather than the sound of my daughter running around upstairs dropping what feel like platters of ingots yeah, on the floor. How are her Barbie dolls like sixty pounds? I have no idea. Weight. I have no idea how she manages to sound like a like a train. Fun with hogsheads. But rather than that, he needed to he needed to shout his sonnets over the sound of uh, of the the factory. Factory looms. Would you listen to a podcast that was just two guys talking, but they're just having to yell over the sound of the factory where they work? Would I? I feel like I feel like the the sound of screaming in my own head is what keeps me from listening to podcasts. But what if it's like what if it's like a pulsing a, a pulsing club beat, and you and I are just like so the the romantic period, <laughs> or a pulsing club beat, but through the wall. Yeah, exactly. so you can't really discern. Like, in, we, well, we do the podcast in the bathroom, of course. We're not going to do it out on the floor. I would not listen to that, but I don't listen to any podcasts, even ASMR ones, even ones recorded in completely silent bunkers, deep, deep under the under the surface of Normandy Park. I guess the thing about a mill would be uh, if you can turn, you could turn down the speakers and just enjoy it as an ASMR podcast. Just enjoy the looms doing their looming. Just fall asleep to that. You don't need two people talking about uh, Presbyterians. Well, McGonagall was, uh, I think, for most of his life was content to uh to to throw that shuttlecock back and forth. Working class hero, something to be. But then he was struck by the lightning of inspiration. The the voice of God appeared in his ear and said, Write. You must write. How old? He's in his late forties? Yeah, he's a he's he's a well, what we would call a middle aged person, although probably yeah. as a factory worker <laughs> near the, the end the of time, his life. That was end of life crisis. And so he did. He begun uh he begun to write. He began to write. And his first poem was uh, a poem that he submitted to the newspaper in praise of a poem by George Gilfillan, the Reverend. I see. Who is also uh, an Edinburgh figure? That's right. I see. And So if you liked the poet back then, you could just write a a poem about him. They live in Dundee, so this is that 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 little bit north of Edinburgh in Scotland, on the on the okay. uh, on the coast there by the the it's uh, one, of, one of the bigger big, and the biggest port city, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it's on the the Firth of Tay, uh, a big body of water, and yeah, big port. Also, Dundee, in my experience, has 
so many traffic circles. <laughs> like they try to slow the traffic down through there and you're just like, another traffic circle. Oh, here I am at another. Like just let the road go through, right? Maybe he should write a poem about that. That that's a kind of I was giving you a little bit of a the Tay a ra- the Tay roundabout by <laughs> all the roundabouts William McGonagall freaking Dundee. Uh, so his first poem is in praise of uh, George Gil uh, Gilfillan and and it's funny he's a fan he's, he's a, a fan. he's a poetry fan and he's like now's the time it's it's finally filled my soul and I have something to say and the Reverend is uh, is looking for working class poets and so they become kind of a reciprocal. Uh, uh, admiration society. Do you think or, that's why he wrote about this guy? He wanted to, he's, he's buttering him up a little bit, buttering his scone, as they say in, in Scotland? Well, as we'll see, he is not a, he's not a, uh, a particularly self-reflective person. And one does feel, he's later parodied by Monty Python. Um, you know, a century later, the Pythons, by this point, McGonagall has become a, a like a figure in English history or English literature. Yeah. And the, the Pythons actually have a sketch of a, of a poet by the name of Ewan McTangle. I know McTangle. This, I know this sketch. And all of his, all of his poems are just like, lend me a fiver. <laughs> uh, there, there isn't quite a, there isn't quite that, that sense of him being um, so naked nakedly self-interested i i believe and i think he's bearing his soul his fans do believe that he is he is completely earnest maybe maybe utterly earnest in his desire to write poetry and and i feel like he probably was rushing to the defense of some sort of sneering commentary on the reverend's poems because there there was from the upper class uh, a, a very dismissive tone and that included the publishers of the newspaper, you know, a very dismissive tone toward a lot of this poetry. Uh, his second, McGonagall's second poem was uh, sort of, it began a, uh, it began a long relationship uh, that he had with the Firth of Tay, and in particular with the, the sort of one of the wonders of the age, the railway bridge over... The Firth of Tay. When a man, over the bay of When, when the a Firth man and a local Firth love each other very much. So this is his muse, the uh, the progress of, of uh, steam power over over the Firth? Yeah, so his his second poem is is an ode to the bridge, which at the time was the longest uh, railroad bridge in the world. Maybe the longest bridge in the world? Hmm. Uh, a, um, a triumph of Victorian design, a bridge that was that was engineered in such a way that it, it marveled the, um, the Victorians because it seemed to be made of gossamer. It was so, you know, it was so less, uh, a, a steel bridge. It wasn't chonky. It wasn't chonky. And, uh, and, and it, it amazed them that it could even stand. Uh, McGonagall, McGonagall, as you will see, and I'll read you a little bit of a few of his poems. Yeah. I'm hoping we get to hear some. He um he understood that poems needed to rhyme, and beyond that, uh, not much else about poetry. Um, he he tried to he tried to evoke the excitement and mystery of of um of the world as he encountered it, and um and his poems were I think right away 
uh, received with a lot of, let's say, good cheer by the by the people who encountered them. Oh, so um, they're not laughing with him? They're not really laughing with him. So here, here's here, here here's a little bit from the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, with your numerous arches and pillars in so grand array. Tay's easy to rhyme. And your central girders, which seem to the eye to be almost towering to the sky. The greatest wonder of the day, and a great beautification to the River Tay. Most beautiful to be seen nearby Dundee and the Magdalen Green. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay that has caused the Emperor of Brazil to leave his farm, I'm sorry, his home far away. Is that true? Well, the Emperor of Brazil did come to visit the Silvery, the bridge of the Silvery Tay. Imagine being all the way, you're at home in Brazil and you're like, I got to see this. It sounds so good. Uh, and so, you know, there is a, a re- reportage about this poem. He's not, it's not full of lies. Uh, anyway, it's caused the emperor of Brazil to leave his home far away, incognito in his dress, and view thee ere he passed along en route to Inverness. Wait, the emperor of Brazil was just like a little touch of Harry in the night. He's walking around Dundee in disguise, just, just get, like, getting the vibe of the bridge. I think he was on a train. Probably the, the 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 Queen Victoria did not come to the christening of the bridge, the opening of the bridge, although invited. But she did pass over the bridge uh, on her way from Balmoral, and um, that counts. And she wrote about it in her journal. Wow, this amazing bridge! So it was it was a very popular topic conversation. He published this uh, this poem via pamphlet. And, you know, sent it to the newspaper and it was, it was complimented by the newspaper, by the editor of the paper of record, which, God, what was it called? The Dundee Dispatch. Yeah, the Dundee Dispatch. The Dundee, I don't know. The Dundee. Picayune Journal. It was, uh, it was, it was given a tongue in cheek compliment. Oh, I see. So they, they're having a little fun. They're having a little fun. Like, Wow. Check out this uh, this poem. the uh, the The author is, uh, is too modest in <laughs> in submitting it to uh, to our lowly paper. But uh, McGonagall seems throughout his career to be singularly um, immune to irony or sarcasm, and he took the tongue in cheek compliment literally, and believed that it was an endorsement of his work. At which point he realized that he needed to submit his, or, or he needed a patron, and so he submitted his works to Queen Victoria, mailed them in to, um, to the office of the Queen. That seems a little ambitious. And received a very polite letter from uh, the Queen's office, thanking him for his submission. Does the palace just send those to everyone? Yeah, I believe there's someone at the palace who just... Just um, thank you for writing her majesty. Thank you for writing her majesty. Um, keep up the good work. <laughs> and McGonagall took that to be an endorsement from Victoria. I like that he's such a guileless guy that you know he he'll take anything as encouragement because he just loves his loves the craft. He 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 loved her endorsement so much that he walked from Dundee to Balmoral uh, over hill and dale. A journey of sixty plus miles, you know, like wow. sleeping out under the stars, and appeared at the gate 
claiming to be the queen's poet and uh, and ready to entertain her, ready for an audience. Does this enter into the realm of delusion then? A lot of people would get that note and think, that's so nice, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't think they could just wander into Balmoral. Well, so this is the challenge in in interpreting the experience of not just McGonagall's experience, but his role in 19th and 20th century English culture. And uh, I know I keep saying English, British, UK. Um, Obviously, he's a Scottish poet. He's not English. And so this is the problem with being an American and feeling like even though the, we all know what th- those words are not indistinguishable, we just can't help ourselves. We don't honestly care as much as they do. Well, because what he did, what what happened is he became a figure of fun in in England, not not just in Britain, but specifically in the 20th century, he became, 20th century, he became a figure of fun in England. In his lifetime or? No. Well, it, yes. Also in his lifetime. And I'll, that's I'll get a bummer to that in a second. If people are laughing at him in the big city. Well, it's a bummer unless you are William McGonagall and are immune to mockery. Um, Ken, I know how important uh, comfortable clothes are to you. Comfortable draws? You're a guy who puts comfort over just about everything else. Am I right? You can tell by looking at me. You're like, that's a comfortable guy. That's a guy who's comfortable this fabric is soft and comfortable next to my skin, but I want it to look good too. And that's why. Yes. Go on. <laughs> that's why I've been delighted to discover Mac Weldon. I remember when I first discovered Mac Weldon, how delighted I was. And at first I was a little bit like, do men really need uh, a underwear and, and garment company just for them? And then I realized, yes, we do. We have special needs. You've been wearing women's underwear too long. You know, it's it's strong enough for a man and made for a man. Mac Weldon uh, makes all kinds of garments, uh, workout clothes, sweatpants, polos, shorts. Socks and underwear are kind of their bread and butter. Socks would be the bread Bread. and underwear would be the butter. Ooh, I'd I'd rather have the underwear be, well, wait, you're right. Socks are a better bread because there's two of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Sure. I was going to say, I want the underwear to be the bread, but what are we talking about? That's more of a burrito. But they make, as you say, pretty much one of everything now. And it's good stuff. It's like kind of next-gen fabrics that look great. They have the 18-hour fabric, the silver impregnated fabric, the Air Knit X. Oh, you know, it's good because it has X at the end. Yep. Warm Knit Dry Near. I don't even know what that means. I'm not sure. That's where they lose me. Dry dry Near. Dry Near? It's like a... I think Thor wields Dreikner. Dreikner. But I love their stuff. I'm uh, I'm wearing Mac Weldon garments as we speak. And uh, you love the free shipping and the the kind of the loyalty program they have. You get different spending tiers, discount tiers once you've spent a certain amount there. You can get like a major percentage discount on their stuff, 20% or more off of their stuff, free shipping, uh, and they guarantee their products. That's right. If you don't know if you would like Max Weldon's Max Weldon? Max Weldon. I love his Private stuff. eye. No, we're not we're talking about his clothing selling brother, Mac Weldon. Just order a pair of underwear. If you don't like it, they'll refund it and you've just kept a pair of underwear you're indifferent to. But if you do like it, oh boy, it might change your life. Well, and let me tell you, here's a secret hack. 
um, the women in my life all really coveted my Mack Weldon pants. So much so that they made me buy them Mack Weldon pants in the smaller sizes. Well, that just gets you to a spending tier quicker. And so last Christmas, I gave Mack Weldon pants, which are, you know, ostensibly for men. I gave them to more than a handful of the women in my life. Mack Weldon pants all over. Gender's a spectrum. And, uh, and in, you know, I was given Mack Weldon pants to my wife, Mack Weldon pants to my girlfriend, Mack Weldon pants to my girlfriend's girlfriend. To your mom. And they were all hugely popular and are, um, are in, you know, constant circulation around here. So don't be dissuaded from Mack Weldon products just because you're not some bro. Look how you doubled their audience. That's what they should be doing because that stuff's cool. For 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com slash omnibus and enter promo code omnibus. That's MacWeldon.com slash omnibus. Promo code omnibus for 20% off MacWeldon. Reinventing men's basics. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, when he appeared at the at the Queen's Gate, you know, the guards mocked him and sent him away. They said, Tennyson is the Queen's poet and you are not. <laughs> but he he wasn't dissuaded. And um and then uh, a, a singular event really thrust him to the to the fore, which was that the railway bridge over the Silvery Tay collapsed oh. in a giant disaster where a train going over the bridge uh, fell into the water, killing 75 people. And um, Well, that's going to be hard on a lot of people, but maybe him most of all. Well... It seems like he really liked that bridge. One would think, unless... Um, unless you used it as inspiration to write a, a new poem, the Tay Bridge Disaster poem. Oh, he's like the Gordon Lightfoot of, uh, of Dundee. That's right. And so he wrote the, uh, an epic poem about it. Um, I'll read a little bit of it to you. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away, although it was only 75. <laughs> 75 didn't scan. It, well, it could have been that 75 lives have been taken away. It actually kind of has a little bit of a swing to it. But um, on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. <laughs> and on and on it goes, recounting the story of, uh, of the train trip and the crash. And his Tay Bridge disaster poem, when published is uh is now widely regarded as the worst poem anyone has ever read um i mean i can see where what they're getting at uh i mean addressing the bridge is kind of funny yeah uh you know going back to kind of the same easy rhymes you know there's there's it's really the same poem over and over yeah and really having nothing nothing to say about the bridge just thinking that you could describe the bridge to the bridge, and that's a poem. The bridge knows what its girders look like. You don't have to tell it. Yeah, I mean, like uh, Keats had something to. Keats had a take on the urn, and Shelley had a take on the nightingale. This is uh, this is now several stanzas into the poem where the action happens. Ooh. So the train moved slowly along the bridge of Tay. This was after describing like the passengers and the trip so far. <laughs> Their luggage until it was about midway. Then the central girders with a crash gave way. 
So he really <laughs> paints the scene. And down went the train and passengers into the Tay. Does every line end with the same rhyme? No, but but in this stanza, a lot of them do. The storm fiend did loudly bray because 90 lives had been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. So it's there's a Dr. Seussian Yeah, it seems like he's, he's, he's not even thinking about what the next line is going to be. You know, he creates a new rhyme and then he's like, oh, what rhymes with nine? Yep. Just gotta gotta get back to it. Gotta keep hammering away. Um, so now he becomes a figure of fun, and uh, and people uh, start to start to um, hire him to read poems aloud at parties and events as oh. a as a uh, comedic figure. Well, I don't like this, and he doesn't. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know that he's being mocked because he's very, very serious, devout man. And doesn't he have friends? Can't somebody pull him aside and say, "Hey, Bill"? Well, he's convinced by his letter from Victoria. By, um, I mean, if you were, if if you said, "Hey, uh, you know, they they don't like your poem. They're actually teasing you," he would. He would point to uh, the Reverend Gilfillian or Gilfillan, uh, and the and the praise that he'd received, all tongue in cheek, and you couldn't kind of dislodge him from the idea. Well, because he was given this gift from God, he was this was a he was touched, I guess. It's and a holy so, calling. so, um, so all the people that were visibly mocking him, he could dismiss as people who didn't understand. And nobody ever dumps pig blood on him at the party or... Well, know. in fact, that does begin to happen. Oh. He's, uh, as a working class person, he is not, um, his poetry is not being funded by his trust fund. And uh, having quit the mill, he's now dependent on the few sort of uh, shillings that get thrown his way by patrons and by people buying his his leaflets. And so a lot of this, uh, a lot of this patronage, even though it's at his expense, it does generate income for him. And uh, at a certain point, he begins to actually perform as part of uh, as part of a circus act, where he's specifically like on stage and being pelted with vegetables by uh by a rowdy sort of working class audience as a circus act and um and being paid for it on on the regular and seems immune to it as um as a, a, a like a humiliating experience it's not ridicule to him because he feels like he's you know, he's being paid for his poetry and he's on stage, like, communicating. I mean, honestly, a lot of poets today might take that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It got so rowdy, though. His performances at the circus got so rowdy that he, um, that the city shut it down and, uh, and you know, closed his, closed down his act. Which and, doesn't happen at poetry readings much. No. You don't get a lot of uh, visits from the fire marshals. Well, not now, but, but, uh. You know, if I, I feel like if I read my poetry aloud, that this is uh, this would I mean it, it would inspire a riot. It would probably be closer to a sex riot. It'd be a different different kind of riot. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, he was making 15 shillings a night at the circus and, uh, and was banned. Now the, 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 the problem with this, of course, is that in very recent years, because his, his poetry has been re- reassessed and reassessed several times in the intervening century and a half. Is anybody like, actually, this was fine. We were, we were classist as hell. Uh, no, the poetry is bad. But what has happened is, in very recent years, the suggestion that he was on the spectrum. And that as, right. a, you know, as a person um, who you know, became kind of obsessed and, and focused on his inspiration and the poetry and, and oblivious to uh, the social cues of people telling him that, you know, or communicating with him that his work was bad. The fact that he started out as a very obsessive fan of a different poet makes me think that holds. You know, we see that a lot in, you know, anybody knows that the most obsessed fan of everything, the guy who has his own projects and binders at home, uh, he or she is, you know, probably thinking a little differently than the rest of us. And there there are lots of working class poets at the time that are, um, that are talking about their, you know, their, uh, their experience as workers. Um, one of them, a woman by the name of Ellen Johnston, who was, I think all contemporary accounts were that she was a very difficult person to like, uh, someone who was so not socially pretty adept. Yeah. Pretty friendless, but wrote, uh, wrote poems about her time working in the, the mills and publishing, published them in the newspaper you know, submitted them to the newspaper under the under the nom de plume, the factory girl. <laughs> also celebrated by Reverend by uh, Reverend Gilfillan, or Gilfillan, and uh, she's had her work. I mean, and she was also ridiculed in her time and largely forgotten until recently. She's been rehabilitated because she's. She's one of the few voices, authentic voices of a working class woman reporting her experiences in its time. Nobody else, nobody else's account survived. Right. So although maybe not celebrated now as a poet, she is rehabilitated as a, as a, um, a, a like a, an authentic voice. A witness or an artifact. Right. Yeah. Uh, McGonagall continued to write. He traveled to London seeking his fame, um, and became he became kind of the source of um like or he became rather the uh, the victim of some upper class pranks at one point he got a letter purportedly from the king of burma saying that he'd exper- you know the king of burma had had uh, uh, delighted in his poems so much that he had knighted him sir topaz knight of the white elephant of burma and uh, McGonagall took this to be uh, authentic, and forever after he called himself called himself uh, William or Sir William Topaz McGonagall, just because uh, of some the Knight of the White Elephant, some dissolute rich bottle conjurer types making fun of him uh, after dinner. Yeah, and this happened to him a lot. Um, <laughs> that he, happened to him a lot. He, he had was, multiple fake knighthoods. <laughs> And the, so, you know, one of the, um, one of the like upper class uh, professors and poets, because almost everybody in this story uh, is also a poet. 
but one of the upper class poets, um, W. E. Aton, 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 W. E. Aton. Is it spelled weird, or are you well, just no, doing a weird voice? A y t o u n, and it's a Scot. He's a Scot, so Aton, who's who's a you know a professor at Edinburgh. Yeah, iTunes was named after him. iTunes. Um, he coins the terms the spasmodic poets to describe all of these poets who are um, who are writing this very sort of brute, passionate, artless, artless kind of uh, the you know the poem comes to them and they they just sort of sport it out, spit spit spurt it out. Uh, he's very dismissive and and of McGonagall in particular. But McGonagall keeps writing, and and he is a he is a very progressive. I mean, he's a teetotaler, as I say, but also uh, he's reform minded. He's reform minded. He writes. Um, uh, here's a little bit from his uh, his uh, poem about women's suffrage called "Women's Suffrage." Fellow men, why should the lords try to despise and prohibit women from having the benefit of the parliamentary franchise? When they pay the same taxes as you and me, I consider they ought to have the same liberty. And I consider if they are not allowed the same liberty from taxation, every one of them should be set free. And if they are not, it is really very unfair and an act of injustice I most solemnly declare." He does seem to think that just saying something is as good as writing a poem. A yeah, poem as long it. as it rhymes at the end. I, uh, I think he might be hurting the cause here. Women, farmers, have no protection as the law now stands, and many of them have lost their property and lands and have been turned out of their beautiful farms by the unjust laws of the land and the sheriff's alarms. So, yeah, if I were a suffragette, I might try to get him to write for the other side. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I you know the arguments uh, for women's suffrage. I think you, at the time you took a, you took every supporter you could get, and McGonagall had become somewhat famous in his time um, because he was uh, he was so universally uh, mocked that he was also celebrated. People, wealthy benefactors supported him. This still happens today. Yeah, as a gag. You see plenty of people who are, who are bragging about how much they get made fun of on social media because, you know, they're talking about me. His poems were com- uh, collected in a book called The Poetic Gems, which, uh, w- and published by, again, a, a sort of, uh, like a, a well-to-do fan and I think it was fashionable to say that you were a fan of McGonagall in, in, in this, like... Uh, You're in the know. Yeah, like, I, this, is, this TV show is so bad, it's good. Hate watching. Uh, but sadly, he died, um, he died in poverty uh, because all of this, you know, you, like, you can sell only so many copies of Poetic Gems to... to ironic poetry ironic lovers. Ironic poetry lovers. He died in po- poverty. He was uh, he was buried in an unmarked grave, and sort of would have been an artifact of his era, um, in the same way that that um, although when when Reverend Gilfillan died, he was very much uh, you know a, a like a public figure on his time. There were thousands of people attended his his funeral. Um, 
you, we would not know about him today if not his if not through his connection to this story. That's funny. But it was really Spike Milligan in the 1950s, the Goon Show comedian, the Goon Show comedian who resurrected this character, William McGonagall, the uh, the world's worst poet, and made him a um, made him a character played alternately by himself and Peter Sellers on the Goon Show. He was you know he was called William McGoonagall. And they did this, you know, the, the, the terrible poet who wasn't aware that he was terrible. And that's, and through the, through the goon show, he became a kind of, uh, again, like the, the sort of lovable loser British character still, still really mocked. And, 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 and through that into, um, into Python, there's actually a character in Harry Potter, uh, Oh, McGonagall? McGonagall, named after McGonagall. But it was through this then that that uh, this retroactive appreciation of the idea, the car- the caricature, that, um, that McGonagall began to have a second life as an English literary figure. Um, Is he back in print? So he's never been out of print. Oh, wow. Uh, because there was always... There was always a little, you know, uh, sort of surviving interest in these hilariously bad poems. But he, um, he's now, uh, throughout the second half of the 20th century and until now, uh, became increasingly a celebrated figure. There's now uh, a plaque where, he, where once he was sort of buried in a potter's grave, uh, celebrating him in a, and celebrating him in, a, in sort of a style of his own verse. Um, oh, you know, nice. Like, Oh, William McGonagall, <laughs> here we see thee lie beneath the Scottish clouds and sky. Uh, yeah, the, his, his gravestone now, which was only installed in 1999, reads um, William McGonagall, poet and tragedian. I feel like the tragedy might have been enacted by him, yeah. not written down. I am your gracious majesty, ever faithful to thee, William McGonagall, the poor poet, that lives in Dundee. So it's addressed to Queen Victoria? It is. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a gravestone that talks to a different gravestone <laughs> hundreds of miles away. Um, <coughs> and, and, and part of it, I think part of what makes him seem heroic and tragic is all these many hours that he spent reciting in po- his poems in pubs, often reciting um, like abstinence poems in pubs and having beer thrown on him. <laughs> he must be beloved, yeah. And feeling that he was on the right side of history. Uh, but because of this love for him, um, that's why people remember George Gilfillan and most of the spasmodic poets. Uh, because, of this, because of this caricature, um, it's why Ellen Johnston has made it now into... Um, as a as a, a a reporting working class woman of the 19th century it's uh, through this connection uh to you know the queen's poet it would be like if people only remembered you know basketball through the harlem globetrotters or or something like that right as recently in the last 10 years a folio of um of 30 odd of his poems actually sold at auction for 6,500 pounds. (laughs) 
this whole story is teaching me that it was probably very hard to be a neurotypical back then. You know, today we can take our gifted high functioning oddballs and throw them at a difficult computer algorithm or something and they just they just love it. They'll just have weird hobbies. But back then he had a boring mill job and you know, he he's got a unusual mind that's just spinning away and uh, nothing to no opportunities for somebody of his class. So so he wrote Doggerel in the paper. Good for him. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, and this is the this is a, brings us back to the question of like American comedy. Um, American comedy punches down uh, traditionally in a lot of ways, like its its worst impulses. Yeah. Um, but the comedian is always in on the joke. The comedian is never. Um, the comedian does not doth not mock himself. But Mr. Bean doesn't know he's doing something very silly. That's right. And and at, at a certain point, like, how many of the great uh, British comedic heroes are actually neuroatypical? If you think about even Basil Fawlty, like, is he not, does he not suffer from a malady? Well, if we were a tiny island like they were, we'd probably have a lot of these genetic issues too. And that concludes The Worst Poet in History. Entry 1445.PR2622, certificate number 444444444444448 in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, as you may know, we were uh, products of our time here at the Omnibus Project. Uh, we uh, kept track of our comings and goings on social media at Omnibus Project. Uh, Twitter, uh, on Facebook, we were rep well represented by the Futurelings, some contemporary listeners. You can search for them there or uh, on Reddit or Discord or, or wherever uh, wherever weird community building happens today on the internet. Uh, I was at Ken Jennings on some of these platforms. You could find John on his uh, Patreon. Jointly, we had uh, Omnibus's own Patreon. The uh, show was really only kept going by the donations of uh, generous and devoted listeners uh, at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. You can learn more about the uh, perks and advantages available to those who donate. Uh, we received email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com, which helped us out with the monthly addenda shows we now put together. We received postal mail mm. through the surprisingly... Affordable and efficient miracle of the United States Postal Service at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Let's see, what, what what do we have here? You received, this looks like it's... Is this another one that's that's addressed just to me? I oh, hope no. it's chocolate bars. There's actually two books, so they okay. may be... Oh, there's, no, this is all well-labeled. Uh, Nick and Rex from the Lane Motor Museum in Nashville, Tennessee... Open Thursday to Monday, 10 to 5. Mm -hmm. um, if those hours are too early for Mr. Roderick, attached are our business cards owned. They're open till 5. <laughs> These guys think that you're not out not, of bed till 5. That is not late enough. A museum should be open till 8. Oh, right. That's a point you've often made. Yes. That, that uh, museums close right around the time people are getting off work. Uh, we hear. Uh, no, he's in a couple of books, possibly from their gift shop. Uh, oh, what are they? You got a collection of their uh, their catalog, a oh, hardcover like Lane Motor Museum. Oh, I like that. Look, Look at, at that. the cool, odd oh, those are cool. automobiles and automobile-adjacent 
vehicles. That's cool. That's that very have. nice coffee table book. What did you get? Uh, road trip, a practical manual, inspiration oh. and expert advice for planning and driving road trips around the world, including 50 uh, suggested routes, oh. uh, including international driving routes to get my kids off of Skyrim. That's nice. You have been, um, you've been on some road trips. I know. I was on a road trip as recently as this weekend, if Eugene, Oregon counts as a road trip. I think it does. I think that qualifies as a road trip. It was great. The Voodoo Donuts had the peach fritter back for one weekend only, and we happened to be in the correct state. Sales tax-free, tourist, uh, touristy donuts, everybody. I do not like peach donuts, Sam I am. Wait, you've had a peach donut, but you don't like it? So, as you know... Uh, Voodoo Donuts in Portland for a while, for the first five or six years they were open, people, every time you went to Portland, you couldn't escape them. They would, they'd shoot 12 donuts at you. Everybody you see downtown carrying this comically pink box, like they're going to get it back to their hotel room and eat, uh, 12 of these 6,000 calorie Captain Crunch donuts. And you know, we would be playing shows and the local promoter would be like, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. Like we got you. Like, you know, it's always what you want backstage is like some bottled water, some ham and cheese. I I want peanut M&Ms. You don't want a fritter the size of a catcher's mitt? No. And and there would always be this box of what, because they always assume that you've never heard of it before, even though you play Portland 14 times a year. It's like, oh, Great. And I'm always, I open a box of donuts, and what I want is a chocolate donut. I don't think they even make it. And it's like, oh, would you, don't you want this donut that's like like this, salamander flavor? This one has cocoa puffs. Yeah. This one has tang. No, I don't want any of those. And so, But then you feel guilty. There's a box with, as you say, 50,000 calories worth of gluten and sugar. Some, some of them costing 4 to $5 each. Yeah, and it's like, and then there's the line around the block. And we used to play at Burbati's Pan, which was right there. And you yeah. had to like move your amps through this line of tourists waiting to eat a Cocoa Puffs flavored donut? They're all made with uh, ingredients that uh, really are shelf stable for hundreds of years. Yeah. That's the beauty of, of Voodoo Donuts. <laughs> I don't mean to I don't mean to be a curmudgeon about Voodoo Donuts. I'm very happy. I know that they are... Well, no actual, no actual Portlandites are going to be mad because they know it's yeah. tourist stuff. Well, but it's like they, they represent 15% of the Portland economy. I John mean, and I, I go to Blue Star Donuts. We prefer your... Thank you. We know where the good donuts are at. But, you know, the one the one donut I liked there was the peach fritter because it was kind of a cinnamon-tasting thing, and it had like an inch of cream cheese on top, <laughs> cream cheese frosting on top, and who doesn't like that? And they got rid of it. They got rid of the one donut I liked. Mm-hmm. But this weekend, for one weekend only, I saw on their social media, it was like, we're bringing back our most requested donut. Ain't that the way? Hey, buddy, why don't you, why don't you guys make your most requested yeah, donut? If it's most requested, <laughs> that's a good sign. I guess as soon as you bring it back, by definition, it won't be requested anymore. I see. Because True. good point. Because it'll just be in the in the rack. Nick and Rex, thank you so much for these uh, delightful uh, bespoke books. Uh, if you have other, uh, if you have items handy that you think John and I would like to talk about to make the show five minutes longer than it should be uh, you can send them to p.o box <laughs> 55744 shoreline washington 98155 future links from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived we're not even entirely sure which side we're rooting for what are the two sides civilization and and uh ruin ruin right i guess that's it ruin rooting for the blood wave which one as are it you comes out of the for? elevator civilization or ruin ken i'm always in favor of civilization i hate i hate if you live with two kids you hate the forces of entropy oh sure you hate the fact that laundry is uh, knee deep everywhere and 
the things you fix crumble immediately. You want civilization to endure just to show up your ungrateful kids. There's a part of me that really wants to demonstrate that I can survive anything. And so I sometimes root for ruin just as a like way to, I don't know, prove some toughness in myself. Like, oh, wouldn't you love to just have no food and sure. no comfort and no... And just be like at war with everyone all the time. You've still got that pink box full of donuts from six years ago, and uh, that'll that'll last you for a few months. When I think about it, no, I don't want to do that. Compared to you know, compared to like turning on Netflix at the end of the night with a bowl of ice cream and saying like, I wonder what dumb show to watch now. It does seem a little bit like Lindsey Graham saying, "Well, of course I have an assault rifle. This is all going to melt down, and I'm going to shoot my neighbors and constituents." But. You don't really want it to. It's just a it's just a fantasy. Yeah, right. It, it seems would really like, ruin your life if, if civilization ended in a lot of ways. It's one more reason we need holodecks. Yes. Or that I should become a gamer. Maybe if I were a gamer, you could, I would just blow up zombies and be fine. You could do a fantasy role-playing game where you wander through the wasteland in your imagination. My imagination. Isn't that better than doesn't what has better graphics than the human imagination? I feel like I would just in, I would just be inhabit adventure time and I would be like, hey, come on, Finn and Jake. Let's all go save the princess. Well, anyway, apparently... I, I have no idea where you were. That's where I was. Okay. Apparently we hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear may never come. Both of us. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, will have been our final word. So if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.